The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Everyone, uh, is this working? Can you tell? If I keep talking, you could probably tell, can't you? It's working? Okay, good. Um, so I had a, one question that just occurred to me when I started sitting, and are we in Silicon Valley? We are? This is actually a real valley? In San Mateo, Redwood City? Uh-huh. Santa Clara? Santa Clara Valley. Uh-huh. That's good, because I had a computer story to tell you, and I wanted to be sure it was appropriate. Um, so they apparently have invented, finally, a computer that thinks like a human. And so they um, asked the computer uh, a very simple question. They said, um, do you think like a human? And the computer paused, and then it said, <clears throat> that reminds me of a story. Do you get it? <laughs> so anyway, I'm going to tell a story, a lot of stories. Um, they're all stories. That's what we do. We tell stories. Um, so this one is uh, from the Zen tradition, and it's called uh, Too Busy. So <clears throat> there was a monk named Yunyan, and his brother, monk, was named Dawu. And they were young monks at this time. They both went on to become rather well-known teachers in later life. But at this time, they were still kind of young and, uh, you know, a little competitive, I think, maybe. So they lived in the same monastery. And Yunyan was sweeping the ground with one of those wonderful brooms. And Dawu came up to him, and he said, too busy. And Yunyan turned and faced Dawu, and he said, you should know there's one who's not busy. And Dawu said, if that's so, then there are two moons. And Yunyan said, holding up the broom, which moon is this? So um, I'm going to talk about that story in case you're <laughs> wondering. <laughs> Uh, so I noticed when I was preparing to come here tonight that one of the nice things about trying to talk about the Dharma is that it, it always um, you know, requires me to be self-reflective. You know? And the main question I end up asking myself is, what, if anything, does my life have to do with the teaching of the Buddha? Because I don't know how it is for all of you, but even, even, even living in a Green Gulch farm, you know, I run around all day long. I'm going to a meeting, I'm answering the phone, I'm checking my email, you know. And mostly, I, I would say, I'm pretty much bobbling along in the swirl of, of events. And um, so, you know, that's between lectures. So when I have an opportunity to give a talk, I like, well, you know, what's relevant to my life? What, what, am I, what am I calling my practice these days? How is it to practice? Am I practicing? You know, what's relevant? 
So this issue of too busy, I think, is really uh, up. You know, it's up all the time. I probably it's up for all of you much of the time as well. We're too busy. I hear that all the time. Too busy. So I started to think about that beginning of my practice. You know, how did I get into this uh, commitment to Buddhist practice in the first place? And what what nailed me to the tradition? Um, and it's I really. You know, I really was not drawn to the bald heads or the black robes or the ritual uh, or the philosophy. You know, that's not where it started, although I think all those things are just fine. Um, But, you know, I'd gone to some classes, I'd attended lectures, and then I volunteered to go to Tassajara um, for a work crew. And so they sent me to a cabin to do some cleaning, and I went down to this cabin, and I was making the beds and sweeping. And I turned, and I noticed on the table there was this little vase of wildflowers. And um, just for, I don't know how long it was, because it was a timeless quality, but the busyness stopped. And... The room seemed very big, uh, very clear, very happy, very peaceful. And I just stood there looking at these flowers. And I probably had had experiences like that before. I think most of us have them often, actually. And especially uh, children have them all the time. But, you know, I sort of keep going, like let the sand fill in the hole very quickly. But this time I was, maybe because I was in a Zen monastery, it occurred to me to pay attention a little longer to this somewhat wonderful feeling that I was having uh, looking at these flowers. So I think what happened then is that I kind of installed this idea that that experience was, you know, was this second moon. There was a more luminous world, somehow, that I was not accessing. That my daily life was, uh, was busy. And that I started to really long for this experience. I wanted it again, and I wanted it to last. So it became a bit of a quest. It went on and on and on for, for many, many years. I would say that was the core of my... Um, understanding of dharma for a very long time, this special state of mind. So I was, I was imagining, in fact, I'm pretty confident that all of you have such experiences in your own personal you know, story, that if you were to go around the room, we could each tell our story of that time, that moment. You know? and, and for all of us, it's probably different. You know, even though we're genetically similar, uh, our stories are unique. You know, maybe you you got a letter, or maybe you fell in a hole, or you know, I met a man who'd been hit by lightning. He didn't know what to do with himself. He was changed. So he came to his Zen center to see if anyone could tell him what to do. You know, that <laughs> we couldn't. It was you know, it's like no, not a clue. So um, 
our, we have a friend who comes to our community. His name is uh, David Stendelross. Some of you may know him. He's a Benedictine uh, monk, wonderful man. And he calls these events spiritual emergencies. He says, it's like you open to this spiritual urge or request that we all have, something in, from inside of us that is reaching out, you know, trying to discover who we really are, where we are, you know, what, we're, what we're here to do. So the feeling or the image of that experience was as though the veil between the worlds was lifted. And just for a moment, I could see this more luminous world, the second moon. It's clearer and nearer and brighter than the first. So, you know, in thinking about these experiences, um, I think oftentimes we don't really know that that we've had an, a significant experience until we reflect back. You know, maybe at the outset of your, your current stage of life, you can remember that moment when you made a choice based on some experience, some intuition you had. You know, for the Buddha, he was um, 14 years old when he had this moment under the rose apple tree, when he f just fell into a peaceful trance. He was quite agitated by, I don't know if you know the story, maybe you do. He was at an agricultural festival and he was very disturbed by watching the animals being whipped and the little birds eating the worms and, and everyone else was having a party and he thought it was just horrific. So he went and sat under a tree and he fell into this calm, quiet, peaceful trance, which later on under the Bodhi tree, he remembered that, that that was the outset of his spiritual discovery of this ancient path, this path of peace. So I was thinking for you Harry Potter fans, it's a little bit like the Horcrux, you know. There's that, that, that thing that we, we catch, that moment we catch, that transports us, you know. And, um, and through the dark, into the dark, still in the dark. You know, it's not the end of the road, but it's certainly one of the major elements of the road. Some encouragement. So in thinking about these moments, um, these spiritual emergencies, I was uh, reminded of a wonderful film that I actually own. I liked it so much I, I ordered it. Um, it's called Afterlife. Do any of you know Afterlife? Japanese film? No? A few, few heads. Um, Afterlife began as a documentary, and the idea that these folks had was they came up with a question that they asked people on the street, which was, if you could pick one moment from your life to have as your eternal moment, what would you choose? So you might think about that for yourselves. You know, what would you pick of all the moments of your life? You could pick one. So the people who they asked this question gave these wonderful, sweet responses to this question. So they actually made it into a movie instead, because they thought they, they really had something wonderful to share. And, and I think, indeed, they did. So anyway, the, the story starts with um, there's a kind of pink cloud. And these people are coming up through the cloud into a, a large uh, 
room that looks a little bit like a 1950s uh, high school. There's a big desk there, and they, they enter into this room, and the caseworkers inform them that they're dead. And, um, and they said, but, you know, that's the bad news. The good news is that you have a week to select this moment for your eternal moment. And so they each get a caseworker, and um, not only that, they have um, a storage room there with uh, these reel-to-reel tapes of each of their lives. So if they want to look back on something that, that happened, so it's, it's very sweet. So anyway, so each of them is trying to figure out what that moment's going to be. And this one man uh, remembers a moment when he was learning to fly a little plane. And he, he went into this bank of clouds at sunset, and they were glowing pink. So he, he, that was the moment for him. So then his caseworker and the other caseworkers actually replicate that plane on this kind of soundstage. And they hang all of these clouds from wires and tape it. It's when he says, That's, this is it, then they tape it. Um, so then later on that evening, it's kind of like us sitting around here, the other folks who are going through trans- trans- transition sit and watch the, the, the film of his, his moment. And then as they're watching, he sits there and gets this big smile on his face, and then he vanishes. So th- that's kind of the, the clockwork of eternity, is the way they worked it out. So then another woman remembers uh, some satin ballet slippers she got during the war when she was a little girl. So they, they tape that for her, and she vanishes. And then there's this one really creepy guy who wants to have them videotape this time he was with a prostitute. You know, he thinks that's the, that's the one he wants to go on forever. You know? And they're going, his caseworker's saying, I'm not sure you want to do that. <laughs> you, know, you really ought to think about this some more. No, he's sure. That's the one. So finally, they get him to look at some tapes. And he sees a tape of himself as a young boy on a trolley car in his school uniform. And there's a crack in the glass. And he's, the trolley's going through this bombed out city. And this little breeze, spring breeze, comes through the crack in the glass and hits his face. And then that's it. That's the happy moment. So he decides to tape that instead. Anyway, it goes on like that. And then there's just this one group of folks left, and that's the caseworkers. And you come to learn that the caseworkers are these very kind of lost souls, because something very tragic happened to them, and they died prematurely. Like the one young, handsome caseworker was killed during the war and leaving uh, his young wife and unborn child. So there's nothing happy for him that can override the sadness of his, of his grief. So you, you get to hear them talking together, and each of them has their reasons for why they can't leave, why they can't choose. And then at the very end, they show this, this young man sitting on a bench outside. And he's, he's being filmed, so you know that he's chosen, but you don't see what it is he's looking at. And then the camera turns. And he's looking at his fellow caseworkers, who he's come to love. And this is now his community. Uh, and it's like his piece of heaven. So, and then he vanishes you know, with this lovely smile, returning to him from the people who love him in turn. 
So anyway, highly recommend this film. It's, <laughs> it's a heartwarming, heartwarming uh, story. So, um, so I, I was thinking, well, okay, so for me, it would be this little vase of flowers on the nightstand. That seemed to me, and it keeps repeating in my memory, as the one, you know, that's the one. It was a poppy, uh, oak grass, and some forget-me-nots. Yeah. Well-named. I've forgotten them not. Um, and then I started to think, well, wait a minute. What's wrong with all the other moments of my life? You know, how come that one? You know, what about, you know, the rest of my time? Hasn't that been worthy of memory or of, of, of treasuring, you know? Like, what about right now? Would we be willing to bet on right now? Yeah. Could this be our eternal moment? Yeah. Um, I think we say no. <laughs> you know, I'm going to hold out for something a little more, uh, I don't know. So, um, so that's interesting to me. You know, what's going on there? Why, why, do I, why have I narrowed it down? Why, why am I not so... Uh, engaged each moment in, in the same kind of open and loving way, and that you know that made me really appreciate this problem of the two moons. You know? There must be two moons: the one who's busy, the one who's not busy; the one who's liberated, the one who's bound; the one who's sad, the one who's happy. You know, those are the two moons, and we want to pick the happy, liberated moon. <laughs> One side is illuminated, the other side is dark. That's our human way. So, I started to uh, think about this case of Dao Wu and, and Yunman. And this story is uh, found in the, what's called the Book of Serenity. Uh, it's a case, a series of koans. And this is number 21, the Book of Serenity. Um, I actually think of it more as the book of anxiety because all of these koans are like, what? <laughs> what are they talking about? But anyway, uh, you know, if I think about my, what I mean when I think I'm too busy, what I really mean is that my body is uncomfortable doing what I'm doing. You know, that it has to do with my hands and my feet and the balance of my body and my mind that's not, you know, that's kind of racing along and maybe some little bit of anxiety in my chest, you know. That's the too busy. It's a quality of, of, my, of my day. It's a quality of my being, you know. And, um, and it can happen just almost any time where I'm just trying to get through the task I'm doing so I can get on to the next task. It's like some crazy card game or something, you know. Ooh, I got that done. Now I can do that. It's like, yeah. And I never win. It's <laughs> just more cards, more emails pouring in. You know? Aren't you kind of afraid not to check your emails every day? You know, it's like, <laughs> it's horrible. Um, too busy. Too busy. So, you know, if, if the problem really is that, you know, 
I'm stressed about the situation I'm in, I also notice at that very time that there's another quality that's going on right in the middle of the task, which is just out of reach. And that quality is something like a, an overripe peach, you know, just ready to drop from the tree. And that's a playfulness. It's a part of me that just wants to say, you know, throw the computer into the, you know, fireplace and have a party and say, like, what in the hell am I doing? You know, this is insane that the whole thing is so silly. All the busyness we're doing is like, what are these, <laughs> these jobs that we all have locked ourselves into, you know? And I just want to kind of go back to being a hippie and just forget it. You know, it's like, I don't want to be responsible. I don't want to answer emails. I don't, you know, but then that seems to be a kind of giddiness. And if I look at that very long, that's just another kind of busy. Busy trying to get out of it. Busy trying to get away from it. Busy trying to have a good time, you know, to relax. I go on vacation and I'm so glad to get home. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm just way too, you know, stressed, trying to relax, trying to, you know, <laughs> lay on the beach. No, I don't want to lay on the beach. It's like, it's so hot out here. Anyway, just to get comfortable. Seems like this, a dog trying to find a spot, you know, on the floor. That's all I want, just a spot on the floor. Yeah. Just a break, just a break. So anyway, these two versions of heaven... You know, the one extreme being the perfect moment in the, in the cabin with the wildflowers, that's moment of eternal beauty. And that the other extreme, I think, well, if I'm going to be a serious human being or a serious Zen student, then maybe my vision of eternity should be something silent and cold. <coughs> there is no movement. There's no warmth, you know. That's kind of, that was appealing for a while to me. I thought, you, know, you just stop, stop it, stop your mind, and everything goes blank, and that's got to be the end of suffering, right? Well, these two versions of heaven are exactly what I think the Buddha was talking about in the very first paragraph of his very first sermon, in which he said, O oh, monks, there are two extremes that ought not to be cultivated by one who has gone forth. What are the two extremes? There is devotion to the pursuit of pleasure and sensual desire, which is low, coarse, vulgar, ignoble, painful, and harmful. That's my wildflower. And there's devotion to self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, and harmful. Well, that's the silence and frozen wasteland of <laughs> my version of nirvana. The middle way, discovered by an awakened one, avoids these two extremes. It gives vision, it gives knowledge, it leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nirvana. So vision and knowledge and, you know, the Buddha, under the, in the rose apple meditation, he wasn't just happy, he was also thinking. Thinking had was part of that meditation. He wasn't in one of the higher jhanas. He already had seen the limitations of that, of those escape routes, because the problem with those is that they end. And then, back to earth. You know? So he understood that if you're going to find the path of peace, 
it needs to be accompanied by thinking and reasoning and knowledge and understanding and wisdom and compassion and relationships and, you know, life. Like, that's what we got, you know. It's a good thing. <laughs> We're on the right track. So, so I'm, I'm kind of revised, I've kind of revised over the years my, uh, you know, the kind of target area for my practice. I often ask people when I'm giving a class on, you know, like, well, what is enlightenment? What do you think enlightenment is, you know? What is your notion of enlightenment that you're striving to arrive at? What's the carrot on the end of your stick? And, you know, if you don't know what your notion of enlightenment is, then it's really challenging <laughs> to figure out, A, how you're going to get there, and B, how you're going to know that you arrived. You know? So I think it's a good exercise to try to figure out what image are you holding in your own mind about... Because the Buddha didn't give us a lot of clues. You know, if you try to look up enlightenment, you'll find some kind of vague, like... I. I saw you house builder and you're never going to build the house again. It's like, what? So there's this metaphor, you know, like, okay, all right, I'll work with that. But, you know, he was talking, he was eating, he was, I don't know if he was telling jokes, I, I think he was, I think he was a very happy guy. So he went on living, he went on meeting with people, he loved people, he cared about people, he devoted his life, he was a teacher of all things. You know, this is a teaching lineage that the Buddha established to help other people to find their way. So I really had to reevaluate my own little carrot, you know. What was I thinking? You know, and it went on for a long time. You know, each of those versions of where I was driving my little car, you know, was quite dramatic. And, uh, and now I think really wrong. It <laughs> like wacky. So um, more and more I'm feeling like, you know, I've really been overlooking planet Earth and the stuff we do here. I didn't value that. I, I wanted to get out of here. Excuse me for saying that, but I don't mean here. But I wanted to get away from the, the worrisomeness and the frustration and the, you know, credit cards. I mean, all of that. I just didn't want to have anything to do with it. I went to a monastery. You know, I wanted to end the struggle with uh, you know, the responsibilities of human life, the way it's lived in, you know, this postmodern era. And, uh, and it, it didn't happen. It didn't work. I mean, my monastery has computers. You know, we, we're... <laughs> We've just colluded. <laughs> There's no outside anymore, you know. It's all inside. Outside is the same as inside. So, um, but that's good, because when I was a when I was a young monk, uh, I remember going up to Mel Weitzman. Some of you may know Mel. I don't know if he's been here. He's a great, great, great guy. He's a teacher at the Berkeley Zen Center. And he was leading our practice period, and I, I was in that serious one. I was in the cold, still, silent uh, goal phase. And so I went up to him and I said, in a public ceremony, it's kind of like this, we have all these people in the room, and each one of you would come forward, if I were Mel, and you'd ask a question. And then I'd get to 
answer. Kind of like these two monks having their little exchange, you know. Too busy. So I said to Mel, uh, dreams are sweet. I love to sleep. What do you have to offer? And uh, he got very stern with me. And he said, go wash your face. Yeah. Boy. <laughs> I was like, whoa. And I felt, I felt kind of shocked, but I also felt you know, this intimacy, like a stern parent saying to an errant child, you know, get with it, wake up, stop goofing around. What are you thinking, you know? So I really, I really felt grateful and I also felt ashamed of myself. And I felt ashamed of myself because I also knew I wasn't about to give up my, uh, my, uh, my dreams of some shamanic state that, that would take me away. You know, because I would have these special visions. I remember at the time I was reading William James' The Varieties of Religious Experience. If you haven't read it, it's a real doozy. You know, all these people who, you know, Jesus walks into their living room or their parlor. And William James went around and interviewed all these people and, and about their visions. And I thought, yeah, that's what I'm after. I want one of those. You know. Something that glows in the dark. So... You know, it's been a long journey for me back to ordinary life, which I thought was, you know, just the shortest route to death through boredom. You know, I grew up in the suburbs. My dad went to work every day. My mom had five kids. That, the idea of that was just so scary and abhorrent to me. I thought, there's got to be something more interesting. Um, <coughs> So now I have a child, I have three cats and a dog, and I have a partner, and, you know, I am so up to my eyeballs in ordinary life. It's, it's unbelievable. So, so I had already started to invest in reality and, and ordinary world and thinking, okay, I guess this is, this is, this is practice, you know? And then, Things were pretty nice. And then about, uh, let's see, four years ago, um, my partner was driving home from work and had my daughter in the car and our dog, our lovely dog. And I was doing some work at Green Gulch. I was the director at the time. And, um, and someone came running up to me and said, there's been an accident. And I said, oh. They said, yeah, yeah, you call, call your uh, grandmother. You know, or your, your mother, somebody. <laughs> I forget who it was. I was in shock. Um, anyway, I, I pick up the phone, and I, and I hear, um, there's been an accident. Your daughter is in an ambulance. Uh, your dog is in an ambulance. And your partner, Grace, is in a helicopter. And they're flying her to John Muir. And I'm still trying to find the second moon. I'm like, this can't be true. It must make me a mistake. Uh, I'm sure they're fine. You know, I'm just scrambling to try and get out of the reality that's glaring in my face. No, this is what's happening. Hello? Really? And it was so, um, you know, like, it took, it, well, anyway, it, it took a lot of time for me to get with the situation that was actually there to sit in that you know, waiting room and to listen to what was going on with my friend Grace 
and you know to go look at my daughter with a collar on her neck and you know it just was it was unbelievable and yet that's what was happening that was what was true there was no second moon there was one moon and it was glaring and uh, you know time has gone by this is like I say it's years ago now and it's and after a year, Grace came home from the hospital. She was in a coma for a month. She broke every bone in her body, just about. Uh, she's still pretty badly disabled. Um, my daughter's fine. She's gone to college. Uh, the dog was flying. Uh, but, you know, I heard Grace selling. Her, her head's pretty good. Her mind's pretty good. She's a physician, and she's actually been able to go back to work. She has a power chair, and she's... She's tough. She's a tough cookie. So she's back to work. Um, she needs a lot of support, and I'm 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 it. So uh, so I I I realize you know the the difference between that vision I had of that vase of flowers and my actual life as a you know I'm a, I'm kind of a servant. I take care of these people all day long. My daughter. Um, she used to be the disabled one. She has cerebral palsy. So she was in the wheelchair, and you know we were her moms taking care of her. She became very able-bodied all of a sudden. <laughs> and so now we're taking care of Grace. And we're like this little train. You know, Everywhere we go, we have wheelchairs, and we have all kinds of equipment. And um, Humpty Dumpty has been put back together again, and some of the pieces are missing. But that's what's happening. And that's what's happening to all of us, you know? This is the real deal. People are fragile, they're vulnerable, they get hurt, they get sick, they have heart attacks, they die, oh my God. You know, so will I. And to, to really be investing my practice in reality is, you know, I, I don't know, I just can't even begin to say how deeply grateful I am for waking, you know, to wash my face. Wash your face, you know. Mel was absolutely right. I couldn't do it then, but uh, I think it's happened. I think that phone call did a, did a pretty good job on me. You know? um, so there's another line from this case. It's case 21 that says, the doings of childhood seem shameful when you're old. And, you know, it's really true. I would think back on myself when I was younger and, and, you know, pretty arrogant. And, uh, yeah, so uh, it's shameful. But, you know, I'm not, it's, I also forgive myself. It's like, well, I didn't know any better. It's okay. Now I'm old. It's, it's okay. I can let that one go. Um, so I do spend my days now in service to my partner and to my child and, the animals and the garden and my community. That's what I do. And it's very practical and it's very, very down to earth. You know, it's, there's nothing exotic. There very few trances. I liked sitting just now. That was nice. You know? <laughs> I love sitting. I have become so fond of meditation because it's like, you know, it's like when, when the, somebody puts you on hold, you know, I love that. Can you hold, please? Oh, yes, I can hold. <laughs> I get hold for an hour, <laughs> you know, happily. So, 
Anyway, so, you know, it's busy or not busy, happy or sad, you know, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. And, you know, how lucky are we about that? You know, it's a very lucky thing that it doesn't really matter. So I would like to end with a poem by Kay Ryan, who's a, a friend. If she only had a minute, what would she put in it? She wouldn't put, she thinks. She would take. Suck it up like a deep lake. Bloat indiscriminate on her last instant. Feast on everything she had released, dismissed, or pushed away. She would make room and room as though her whole life of resistance had been for this one purpose. So on the last minute of the last day, she would drink and have it, ballooning like a gravid salmon or the moon. Would you like to hear it again? Oh, okay. If she only had a minute, what would she put in it? She wouldn't put, she thinks. She would take, suck it up, like a deep lake, bloat indiscriminate on her last instant, feast on everything she had released, dismissed, or pushed away. She would make room and room as though her whole life of resistance had been for this one purpose. So on the last minute of the last day, she would drink and have it, ballooning like a gravid salmon or the moon. So, well, I don't have my watch. What time is it? Can't see. <laughs> Nine? Oh, five. Eight fifty-eight. So we have a few minutes. If you have a, a question or a comment, if you'd like to make. Uh, I miss Gil. Where is he? Retreat. Retreat. Um. I would say another way to talk about the too busy living is is to talk about um, uh, uh, what I would call task oriented living, mm. or or this this whole kind of uh, to do living, which is you're you're constantly putting putting more and more tasks on the on the on the board, so it never it never ends, of course, because as soon as you do some, tomorrow there's always more to do. So. I call it uh, to-do living, and um, it's just never any kind of thing. So it's another way to put that, yeah. what you're talking about, too busy. Yeah, yeah. 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 We all need a break. Yeah. And who was the author of that poem? Could you say again? Kay Ryan, the uh, poet laureate. Uh, our, poet, our poet laureate, the United States. I think two years ago she she lives in uh, Mill, in Mill Valley. Hi. 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 Um, great story. I could relate to that. When I was 32, <laughs> my wife died, and I had three little kids. My youngest was 12 days old. And I remember everything changed that day. Um, being at the hospital and having the doctor come in and say, I'm sorry. And it was just like my consciousness, consciousness left my body. Yeah. Um, it's been 
a long time, and I've gotten a lot of gifts out of it, mm -hmm. and I made peace with it. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, I never thought that would happen, but I feel like that's the way it was supposed to be. So. How are your kids? Wonderful. All, all grown up? Yes, and we're very yeah. close. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, got two in college and mm -hmm. one who's out of college, and they're all doing really well. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. I just had a question. I was wondering, um, I guess I'm a little bit confused about the moons that you're talking about, the first moon and the second moon, and the second one being clearer. Um, mm -hmm. If you could, yeah. you know, explain. <laughs> yeah. Well, the second one is our uh, imaginary moon. And imagination is much clearer than reality. Reality is fuzzy and, you know, confusing, and it's changing all the time. And, and we can't quite catch it. So we make up stories about it. And we slap stories on what's happening to, to make something that holds still that's very clear. It's like putting glasses on. Oh, now I see how it is. It's how I think it is. So that's the second moon. That's the luminous moon. It's a fantasy. And we're very fond of those. You know, we're all good at it. <laughs> So to actually, you know, see that they're, those two things are not the same. Our fantasies about reality are not the same thing as reality itself. Reality is inconceivable. It's indescribable. It can't be taken by words. But we keep talking. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. 30 seconds. <laughs> I, I worked with Gil at the Tassar Bakery when he was a baby, and I was a baby too. We were very young, and um, I love that guy. He's wonderful. I'm so happy you all have him as a teacher, and you have this place, and he's doing so beautifully. Um, I love his laugh and how he looks, and he's, he's so smart. <laughs> anyway. We, we serve on one, one group at Zen Center. He's, you know, he's a Zen student, too, by the way. I know he doesn't advertise that very much, but he actually yes. did. Okay. Does he? Does he? Absolutely. Anyway, he's got his Dharma transmission and all of that. But I know he's got his heart in, in uh, both, both camps, both moons. <laughs> so send him my love when you see him, please. Tell him who was... Missed him and very happy to be here. As soon as I sat down, I could feel him and I heard his laugh. Well, uh, he's just pervading this space here. Great. Well, thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you.